8.03. So just last week, South Korea did become the first country in the world to successfully hold a nationwide election in the COVID-19 pandemic era. What can other countries take away from this? We cannot view this question from the current lens, i.e. a country that's down to eight new infections. Just weeks ago, when the election was being planned, it was in the high hundreds, uh, the daily infections, and they were still planning to hold this election. Important to recognise as we, for example, consider the US where state primaries for its November presidential election have been postponed and it tries to work out how to proceed. Professor Timothy Rich at the Political Science Department of Western Kentucky University, Director of the International Public Opinion Lab, joins us on the line. Good morning from Seoul. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you and your research team conducted a web survey in March to gauge the Korean public's perceptions of the government's response to this pandemic. What led you to do that in the first place? But also, what did you find? Sure. So um, I've done a lot of research in the past, public opinion in South Korea, and a lot of what we focused on in the past was about uh, elections or, uh, for example, perceptions in North Korea, since I'm teaching a North Korea class right now. And one of my students actually brought up why don't we ask about the response to COVID? After all, a lot of the coverage in the U.S. was about how, how, uh, how South Korea had responded very strongly to COVID, but we weren't sure if the Korean public actually viewed it the same way. Uh, so we did our survey, added a question about this, and what we found was um, very mixed results, in fact, that um, you know, about 44% of the respondents said that they were satisfied with the response, but about 36 said they weren't, with uh, the rest sort of in the middle. And a, a big surprise was that, I, well, I, I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise, was that it was a very partisan difference. If you supported uh, the Democratic Party, 70-ish percent supported um, the policies. And if you supported the UFP, it was about the opposite. It was about 70 percent said they didn't. It's been interesting, though, how this particular scenario has been evolving so fast, isn't it? That from one week to the next, and certainly one month to the next, you could get very different results on that sort of survey. Oh, I, I totally agree. Uh, we did this in, March, in early March, uh, where, you know, the I, I think... Probably at the height of our pandemic then. Exactly, exactly. So, and I think that partially explains some of the conservative um, disapproval that, you know, these other things you should have done or why couldn't you have prevented this. But by April, seeing sort of that, you know, you had uh, already sort of um, gone over the curve, that it hadn't exploded the numbers of cases, that there was a lot more international tension about how well South Korea was doing, that a lot of people who were sort of indifferent thought that, this was, you know, they, they handled it fairly well. So before our general election, I was very concerned because I, I, I was concerned here that COVID-19 itself would massively skew people's thinking going into this. Uh, but I was also concerned that it would affect voter turnout. The latter, as it happened, was uh, completely unfounded. We had uh, an incredible level of turnout. How, how did you view the way things went last week here? Um, a couple of things. First of all, I was I was very surprised by the turnout. I was asked a few days before the election, what do I think the turnout's going to be? And I said, like, even with all these precautions, with early voting, all of this, I was saying a little over 50 percent. And I was very wrong. Um, I was very surprised. Uh, but I think that also points that, you know, all of these precautions, people felt that 
it was safe to go vote, that you could vote early, that, um, you know, with the gloves and the masks and all, all this and um, the number of polling stations and all, and, and all of this really contributed to a, an environment in which it felt like uh, that it wasn't a, it wasn't, you weren't risking your life to go vote. In the U.S., it would vary substantially uh, from state to state. Uh, it would be a much more pronounced difference than what we've got here in Korea uh, in terms of population spacing. So how can the U.S. take anything from the South Korea experience and, and apply it to the build-up to the U.S. election and the election itself? Sure. I think there's, a, a, there's several things. Um, I think... The, this notion of masks, of glo- requiring gloves, assuming that they're available at local precincts, I think that goes a long way. Um, I think perhaps the easiest thing to lower concerns would be early voting. Um, you know, I think there's still sort of a pushback, especially among Republicans, of this notion of mail-in voting, even though um, you know Utah and a few other states already allow it. Um, but early voting, it's a little bit harder to... Um, to oppose that. You, you go through the mm. same process, you don't have, ballots aren't lost, things of that nature. And I think having those two days in South Korea that you could vote early, uh, really sort of, if you were concerned that election day was going to be super busy, you could go early and you're fine. Yeah. See, this is an interesting point that about mail-in voting, Republicans perhaps not being so happy with that. that to me, uh, that's not a justification for not holding an election or not carrying out a certain measure. What I was suggesting before about not holding an election at this time would be more that one single issue would have a profound impact where in everyday lives for the next few years, there'll be many, many other decisive factors that uh, that, that will influence people's lives. What's your view on that when that when there is a situation where it's just overwhelmingly in one direction, the conversation? I mean, I, I think that that happens. I mean, if you think of elections post 9-11, for example, that that mm. becomes a focal point or po- after a terrorist attack or things like this. So this is not that unusual. You know, political science talks about the rally around the flag effects, especially right after these types of events or wars, for that matter. Uh, but then go in the other direction as well. Um, you know, not handling an epidemic becomes sort of an albatross around your neck that's easy for the opposition to um, to to hold you towards. Uh, but I think sort of an, an, another issue here, too, is that for a lot of voters, even if we'll use the pandemic as an example, that's just one other thing to weigh how you're going to vote. You know, um, that like if you were leaning Democrat, you know, or leaning Republican already, you know, how President Trump and the administration responds to COVID, uh, it, it's probably just one of a basket of things that are influencing that vote. Already we've seen an impact, for example, Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race at, just a few weeks after he was looking like um, he, he might actually have a reasonable chance when you consider the way things were on the Democrat side. Is that COVID-19's fault or do you see other factors there? I, I That's hard to say. And, and I, I think... Um, you know, imagine a a non-COVID-19 world. Um, I'm not sure how much more momentum Bernie Sanders really had. I think that there was a certain ceiling um, to his support, and I think the outcome probably would have been pretty similar, frankly. Yeah. It's a matter of, like, how long do you stay in? Um, so I, I'm not really sure that it 
that uh, his decision to drop out really affected um, would have been any different without COVID. Yeah, and, and for, for what it's worth, I'm talking about a reasonable chance of, of actually running for president in the end, not of necessarily beating Trump, because I don't think Sanders would have done that. I'm not convinced Biden would do that. This is not yeah. really the conversation to speculate, but I just want to make that clear. Um, yeah. It's uh, also a fierce debate on how to proceed as we get closer to November, if the US is uh, still in this kind of situation, the, the, the difficulty that US has compared with, say, South Korea is the population size, the geography. It's like several countries in one. And, and at what point do you have to make that decision? Do you have to say by July, for example, we, we are or we're not going to postpone this election? Well, in order to postpone an election, um, you know, a, a national election, both houses of Congress have to approve it. And I just don't see that happening. I think that's, I, with all the talk about, you know, that COVID could, you could have a second wave in the fall. Um, I, it's really hard to imagine a scenario in which both houses basically say it's postponed because their own term limits run out, you know, in, in January. So you don't have a, much of a, a wiggle room, frankly, to move it. Uh, which should put it, uh, an impetus on finding ways to have a safe election, whether it's early voting, mail-in voting, or something else. Yeah, well, I mean, because the flip side to what happened here in Korea with the high turnout was what happened at the Wisconsin primary recently. Only five of 180 polling stations were open in its largest city. People who didn't have access to absentee voting, mostly African-Americans or Hispanics, as it happens, had to wait in five-hour lines to vote. Is it... Therefore, a, a scenario that, that demands further discussion of, of how to avoid that happening, or would they just potentially proceed under those circumstances? No, I think this is a very important question. I think a lot of people looked at Wisconsin and were outraged, frankly. Um, and there are various reasons for this, from you know under underestimating how many polling workers that you needed, how many would show up, because in the U.S., a lot of poll workers are volunteer so, like, you have that concern. They're not, they're not full-time civil servants. Um, and, you know, the, an expectation that it might be delayed or there was going to be more options for absentee ballots. Um, I would like to think that most states are thinking in those terms of at least, if not mail-in ballots, um, how can you make absentee ballots more available? How, are, how do you prepare for a, a potentially high turnout election in which uh, precincts, uh, are under such con- considerable strain, and um, I, th- I think that's a valid question. And I think it, I don't think Wisconsin's going to be, you know, a place like Milwaukee is going to be the only place. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis, that is remarkably similar in d- demographics and size. And if there were only five polling stations there in the fall, it would be uh, very problematic. Coming back to President Trump's political situation, I, at, at this point, nothing surprises me. I, frankly, when he survived having his own voice on tape speaking in vulgar tones about women at a, at a, at a time of very heightened sensitivity about uh, abuse of women and still got elected. I, <laughs> frankly, I'm not sure if there's any scandal that, that can hit him or hurt him at this point. What about COVID-19? Can that do what a scandal was not able to do before? Where, where do you see his standing going to the election? I think, you know, there's a, a core group of supporters that are going to be supportive regardless, and there's a core group of, um, of, of voters that w- were never going to support him. Um, but I think for a lot of, you know, 
you could call them swing voters or apolitical or you know you know sort of fence sitters, whatever you want to call them. Um, the response to COVID has not been good. In fact, if you look at uh, more recent polling data, most of it show, most polls show a a more people disapprove of the Trump administration's handling of COVID than approve, uh, especially those that um, are, are moderates or sort of left of center. And I think that that is a challenge because it is hard to um, it's hard to justify that. There's so much evidence. You know, South Korea was able to respond quickly. Taiwan was able to respond quickly. Um, the first cases in the U.S., Taiwan, and Korea were one day apart from each other. Uh, so it's it's a it's it's great ammunition if you're the Democrats to to um, respond to Trump on this. And as as casualties, frankly, rise. You know, there's a very strong possibility by the end of next month there'll be more casual there'll be more deaths. I should say more deaths from COVID than there were in, during the Vietnam War. And well, well it, that's it, something that would resonate. It, I mean, it's up to Joe Biden to um, to wield those weapons, and uh, unfortunately for the Democrats, he has been as um, challenged as President Trump has uh, on occasion at, at stating things clearly. So it's, it's going to be an interesting few months ahead to watch, and certainly we wish you and the U.S. all the best in, in getting those numbers down. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I, I, um, I, I am certainly concerned. Getting the infections down, but the number of voters up, we should probably clarify. Professor Timothy Rich from the Political Science Department, Western Kentucky University.